How's it looking? Okay. Habakkuk chapter 3. The last chapter of Habakkuk. Uh, if you missed the first two, uh, go watch them. I mean, it's only three chapters. You can get credit for a whole book, you know? It's worth it. Just go back and watch them. Um, but if you... Also, if you missed the first two or one or two of them, uh, you're, you're getting the, the best one. Because Habakkuk chapter 3 has the happy ending we've been leaning forward towards, hoping for. Uh, so let's, let's read it. Um, I'm going to read the, the chapter in its entirety. Uh, chapter 3 of Habakkuk, starting in verse 1. It says, A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigayana. O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Teman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand, and there his power was hidden. Before him went pestilence and fever followed at his feet. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and startled the nations, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed. His ways are everlasting. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian trembled. O oh Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. You divided the earth with rivers, and mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spear. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. You went forth for the salvation of your people, for salvation with your anointed you struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses, through the heap of great waters. When I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet and he will make me walk on my high hills. To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Lord, we pray for faith to see. Uh, we pray for the eyes, um, the eyes of our souls to be enlightened, to be able to see Christ as the head of all things, as, as uh, you, God, being the glory that Israel traded in for for idols and that we ignore and look away from, but we want to see you. Yeah. And, and I pray for the faith 
that we see at the end here, where even if nothing else is right, you are there and cannot be defeated, cannot be lost. <coughs> Fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Give us understanding of spiritual things by your Holy Spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Uh, around 800 years before the book of Habakkuk, a man named Joshua was leading the people into the promised land. And he had just inherited that job as leader of the people from uh, Moses, um, who people knew pretty well. Uh, it never says that Joshua was nervous um, about this job, but the Lord does tell him several times in the first two chapters of Joshua, be courageous, don't be afraid. So I don't think it takes a whole lot of reading between the lines to see that Joshua may have had some anxiety concerning this task that was before him. And, and at the beginning of, of Israel's campaign into the land of Canaan, before Jericho, Joshua encounters the commander of the Lord's army. He thought it was him, of course. That was the job description that he just received from Moses, right? But um, he encounters the actual commander of the Lord's army. It's in Joshua 5. You can read all about it. And Joshua's first question for this guy is, whose side are you on? He wants to know, are you for us or are you against us? And this heavenly being says, no. I, I don't know a lot of Hebrew. But I know enough of English to know that the question asked was not a yes or no question. God sends the right answer anyway, uh, to, to speak what is true and also to force the right question. If I'm giving the right answer and it doesn't match your question, it's your question that was wrong, not my answer. And, and, and the, the angel, who many believe to be a Christophany, this is an appearance of Christ himself, says, no, I'm the commander of the Lord's army. Meaning I'm not on your side. I'm not on their side. I'm on God's side. And then, of course, this forces the correct question, which is, whose side are you on? And then he tells Joshua the same thing that Moses was told at the burning bush, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. Joshua was corrected. And, and when he asked, whose side are you on? You know, God answered, I'm on my own side, and you had better be sure you're there too. You get on my side. Now, I couldn't help but think of this story as I've been reading Habakkuk and studying Habakkuk, who, Habakkuk was also afraid and, and nervous about things that are coming, and also wondering, God, whose side are you even on? He looked at the situation, and he's looked at his world, and he's even looked into the future, and he's wondered, what are you thinking, Lord? God showed him how he would cause the destruction of Jerusalem, the city he loved, and he would use the wicked, evil Chaldeans, the Babylonians, to do it. And Habakkuk is saying, how could you? With them, we are better than them. How can you have them defeat us? We're better than them. Whose side are you on? And God says, I'm not on a side. There's one side, it's mine. And as long as you aren't on my side, you will be in my way, whether you are Jerusalem or Babylon. It's all the same Babylon to me. Now remember Habakkuk's first question in chapter one was, God, why don't you do anything about evil? about all this evil that I see. Why don't you do something? He, he's asking a question kind of like Joshua. God, aren't you on my side? Then God says, I'm going to judge the wickedness of Judah, of my people, by allowing the Chaldeans to conquer Jerusalem and burn the holy city to the ground. And then Habakkuk really has a problem and says, honestly, whose side are you on? And in chapter two, the Lord pronounces judgment on Babylon and declares himself to be the winner. He's like, no, 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 don't make this mistake. I'm not like choosing a new people, and Babylon is now my people. 
It's just me and then everything else. That, those are the teams. I'm, I'm the winner. It's not Judah. It's not Babylon. It's not any nation. God alone. Soli Deo Gloria. And in the pronouncement of, of woes on Babylon, a lot of the sins that God is calling Babylon out on look a whole lot like the sins that Judah is engaged in, which emphasizes God's point. If you're not on my side, you might as well be a Chaldean. You might as well be a Babylonian. We saw that in chapter 2. The three highlighted verses in chapter 2, um, verse 3, the just shall live by faith. This was said in contrast to the proud. The faithful just are the humble people. And the proud, whether they are Jew or Gentile, will be judged. Chapter 2, verse 14 prophesied that there is coming a day when the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the water covers the sea. God says, my kingdom is the one that wins in the end. My kingdom will stretch further than Babylon. It will be global. It will be glorious. And you won't be able to speak of earth without speaking of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, just like you can't talk about the sea without people thinking of wet. It's not the Babylonians' glory that will last. No, and it's not Jerusalem's either, not this version of it at least. It's the glory of God alone. And the chapter ended with this declaration, but the, the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. All the earth, not just Babylon, the whole earth. God gets the last word. And when Habakkuk sees this, hears this, he changes. Well, we haven't heard from Habakkuk since chapter 1. In chapter 1, he gave his complaint uh, twice. And then in chapter 2, he sets himself up on the wall, on the rampart of the city, to see what the Lord would say when he was corrected. He expected correction. And the, and the correction came in chapter 2. Habakkuk had been corrected. His question was, whose side are you on anyway? That question has been pushed aside. His perspective has been broadened, and he had, he's been told by the Almighty himself, all the earth will keep silent before me. I get the last word, Habakkuk. And, and then it's sort of funny, because the rest of the book isn't silent. You'd think chapter 3 would just be a big blank page, you know? Chapter 3. Mm. Yeah. But the... Here's the thing about chapter 3. It starts off by saying, this is a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, on that word there, Shigayanah, maybe? It's a weird word, probably a kind of a musical reference. You read the Psalms and it'll say things like, a psalm of David set to the deer in the dawn. Um, Habakkuk's prayer is a song. We know that from the last verses, right? To the chief musician with my stringed instruments. Now, songs are very, very rarely written spontaneously, or at least the final form is not a spontaneous just eruption, right? Uh, especially not with the care that was clearly necessary in writing this poem that we have in Habakkuk 3. This means that, or indicates at least, that between God saying, let all the earth keep silence before me, between that moment and the time when Habakkuk sang his song, or, or finished writing his song, there was probably a great deal of silence. Most people are quiet when they write things down. Chapter 3 is the result of chapter 2, no doubt, but it probably was not an immediate response. It came after hearing from the Lord and resting in the Lord. The silence commanded in chapter 2 was necessary for the making of this hymn in chapter 3. And this, this has been something we've learned about Habakkuk since week 1. 
since chapter 1. Habakkuk is a man who's willing to go and be silent in order to reach the spiritual depths, to reap the spiritual benefits. Chapter 2, verse 1, he goes to the he goes to listen, to hear from the Lord. He already said his piece, and then he waits quietly. And the result is that he sees God on the throne, and God's plans begin to unfold, and he hears, keeps silent before me. And the result of that silence, I believe, is this hymn of praise. Um, you're familiar with the, the verse from Psalm uh, 34, you know, be still and know that I'm God, and you have that idea. And most people, when they think of that verse, think of just like this nice, idyllic brook, right? And it's not like the first few verses of Psalm 23, before that all the valley of the shadow of death stuff that you don't want to deal with. It's just, just the nice green pasture, just the still waters, and you and your journal and your, and your, and your Bible and, and a sigh, and you go, ah, oh, be still and know that I'm God. And then you read the rest of the psalm, and it's about God destroying the world. That's, what, that's why it's still. That's why it's still. Because everything's been flattened. Everything. And he says, now you can be still because I quieted all that other noise. Are you listening yet? That's the kind of silence that Habakkuk has been able to enter into. Everything else has been silenced and now he can hear. So now he can praise. In the recordings lately, we've been having problems with, with sound. Uh, uh, we've recorded and get this awful buzzing over the whole thing. Uh, and, and it turns out it was, it was bad jack on the camera. And so when you unplug the cable from the damage jack, the buzzing stopped. And the strange thing is, even though my voice was being recorded the whole time, it was being recorded at the same time as the <laughs> sound. And it was difficult to hear because of all the other noise. So when that bad sound silenced and just the voice kept coming, it was like silence. It was like, it was like your ears can finally relax. And you're like, oh, it's quiet again. Which means you could actually listen. Because it wasn't silence. There's sound being recorded the whole time, but now you could actually hear it because something had been silenced. Once the earth keeps silence before the Lord, the good sounds, praise, come into their own. They can be presented with clarity. Once Habakkuk could see that he didn't need to just listen to the violence around him or the destruction that's coming or the warnings and woes of the 24-7 news cycle that prophets had access to. Once he could see that all those things were buzzing it was just, you know, the, the white noise in the background that prevents from hearing the things worth listening to, that need to be listened to. Once those things could be unplugged, he could hear from the Lord more clearly and speak to the Lord from a more, with a more clear perspective. Now that the silence had come, the prayers could start. Don't underestimate silence. Now that we've come this far, look at the prayer. Revive your work in the midst of the years. He says, starting in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard your speech and was afraid. O Lord, revive your work in the midst of the years. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. Quite literally, Habakkuk prays for revival. But it's not asking, it's not the same way people pray for revival, usually. Habakkuk is not asking for a blessing on his plans anymore. God, I want, I want you to do this. Please bless it. Uh, remember when Habakkuk thought that he had a better plan than God? Remember the last time you thought you had a better plan than God? <laughs> remember how well it worked? But now Habakkuk is done. He's done offering suggestions and saying, how could you, God? He's done with that. He's done asking questions. And so when it's time to pray, Habakkuk does not say, revive the work of my hands. I've been a prophet. I'm working hard at this, right? You see prophets explain this to God. I've been working hard, the Lord. Uh, you know, and, they, and 
He doesn't do that anymore. He says, no, I'm not asking you to bless my work. Revive the work of your hands. Revive your work. You're the one on the throne, Lord. That's been made very clear to me now. And it's your work that will be accomplished. And it will be your work that will accomplish the promise of chapter 2, verse 14, that the knowledge of the glory of God covering the earth. Revive that work. That's way bigger than my work. So do that. Habakkuk is not asking for revival of his work, nor is he demanding a certain timeline either. He's saying, in the midst of the years, this is in real time and space, but it's God's time and his space. So Habakkuk asks for revival, God's way and God's time. But at the heart of this request is simply a plea for mercy. Still in verse 2 at the end, it says, In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk made it clear in his first complaint. The culture's lost. It's lost. Circling the drain, Lord, what are you going to do about it? God has now made it clear that his pronouncement of judgment on Babylon and the nation is, is sure. The nations are lost. Judgment is coming and destruction is certain. And in the midst of this judgment, Habakkuk prays, just remember mercy. Have mercy. In Hebrews chapter 11, what we call the faith chapter, right? It says, in order to please God, you must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And Habakkuk, in, show, in asking for mercy in the midst of a sure and certain judgment, is showing himself to be this man of faith. Who says, I, I still believe, God. I have seen the future and destruction happens. It's all dust in a few years. And I'm still going to seek you for your mercy. He is showing himself to be a, a man who is just, who is living by faith. Habakkuk asks for mercy, one of the oldest liturgies of the church, the oldest prayers that believers have included in their devotions for centuries is this simple prayer, Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. And the thing is, two chapters ago, I don't know if you remember this, Habakkuk was praying for justice. At least against the guys he didn't like. Right? He's like, you have, you, you, you know, set them aside for judgment, right? And that's one kind of prayer. But after a meeting with God, man is much more likely to beg for mercy than to ask for justice. After the silence is kept in the presence of God, we are not likely to pray, give me what I deserve. After God has said in chapter 2, this is how I will judge the nations, Habakkuk is not going to say, well then give me what you owe me. No, 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 no. Just like no one goes out on a dark night, looks at the Milky Way and says, how great I am. <laughs> you know, like that, it's not how the hymn goes, is it? That's not what happens when Habakkuk sees clearly and can hear clearly once the noise has died down. He knows that a request for justice would be grossly out of place. And a request for mercy is his only hope. So he says, remember mercy. And it doesn't say that, and this is about his people, of course. His heart is for Israel. But we know from the book of Daniel, as we've referenced in chapters before, that God has mercy on Babylon too. God has mercy on the Gentiles. Most of us are evidence of that. And his, his, we're better than them and judge them but forgive us, all of that line drawing stuff, that has gone out the window because he's seen God. And he just says, remember mercy. He can't say give Jerusalem what they deserve. He's already confessed that this city is full of violence and injustice. 
He can only ask for mercy. The first several chapters of the book of Romans goes to great lengths to prove that no one has any hope except in the mercy of God, where there is more than enough hope to go around. Habakkuk prays for revival, and then after that, he begins to praise the God who brings revival. And, and if this is a description of revival, then it, it, again, it's very different than how most people pray when they think of revival. Verses 3 all the way through 16, it's a description of a vision that Habakkuk has of the appearance of God. Um, some of it seems to be in the past, some of it's in the present, some of it's in the future. That's the way prophets deal with things. Um, but he is, he is seeing a vision of the Lord coming on the clouds with glory, filling up the sky. We've drawn many parallels between Job and Habakkuk, right? Here's another similarity. At the end of Job, when God finally appears, he appears in a storm, a whirlwind. Here, God comes somehow in the sky, filling up the sky. It seems likely that it's a similar occurrence, God coming on the clouds with glory. Just like he did at Mount Sinai, when the presence of God rested on the mountains, there was thunder, clouds, smoke, trumpets. I'm thinking all of these things would fit very well with Habakkuk's vision. Chapter 3 provides some of the, of the, um, the scope uh, for what he's seeing. He says, God came from Teman, the Holy One, from Mount Paran. Uh, from Jerusalem, where he set himself up on the wall, you remember. Uh, Timan is south, uh, southeast. Paran is southwest. They're not the same place. It's not just saying the same name twice, right? Which means if God is coming from both of these places, then he's filling up a lot of space, right? So I think he's seeing this kind of storm roll in that just fills the whole sky. And he says in verse 3 that his glory covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. Habakkuk is seeing in, in his prophetically gifted mind's eye the fulfillment of God's promise in 2.14. The earth is beginning to be filled with the glory. He saw the visions of the fulfillment of God's promise. Verse 4 says his brightness was like the light. He had rays flashing from his hand and there his power. There his power was hidden. Before him with pestilence and fever followed at his feet. Now this is a common vision for the prophets, what we call the day of the Lord. And it's a day of both judgment and salvation. And those two ideas are really difficult to untangle. And if you think, how do these two things go together? Then you look back at the formative event of the nation of Israel, the Exodus. That was their salvation moment. That's when Israel became Israel as, as they knew it, right? The Exodus, God saved them. This says pestilence and fever come from God. What is that about? Well, just remember the plagues of Egypt. A lot of Habakkuk's song here seems like a memory of the exodus from Egypt, sort of superimposed on a vision of future judgment on Babylon and the nations. In the destruction of Egypt in the past, or Babylon in the future, or eventually all the nations of earth, the Lord will show himself strong, and his enemies will show themselves to be defeated, and his people will be secure in him. In verse 6, it says, He stood and measured the earth, he looked and startled the nation, and the everlasting mountains were scattered. The perpetual hills bowed, his ways are everlasting. When a king would, or general, would conquer a territory, uh, one of the first things he would do after the, the dust settled, would he, he would go and measure what he had just won. How big is my trophy? How big is the battlefield that God will conquer? It's the earth. He wins it all. When he says he sort of measured the earth, 
He's like, okay, this is my battlefield. This is what I just bought. This is what I just won. How big is it? And he runs a tape measure around the circumference of the universe and says, yep, that's how big I remember making it. And it's his. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Do you see how Habakkuk's perspective is shifting? How he's considering a much larger scope now than just the people down the road that are not nice and then the people down the street that are going to come and be mean. He's got a much bigger scope now than just Chaldeans versus Hebrews. He sees God as king, whose battle is bigger, but the battle is won, whose territory is universal. And when he says his ways are everlasting, he's confessing that the victory of God is forever in both directions. Now Paul speaks about well, his sufferings, right? Stoned, left for dead, beaten, shipwrecked. Some of these more than twice. And then he goes ahead and calls them light, momentary afflictions. That's what an eternal perspective will do for you after sitting in silence in the presence of an eternal God. A lot of what you used to think needed to be loud gets real soft. And you say, God has the whole earth. He's the king of everything. In the end, he gets the last word. And then you look back at your, you know, shipwrecks, being left for dead, beaten, stoned, all those things, and you think, light and momentary. Light and momentary afflictions. Eternity's a long time. In verse 7, Habakkuk says, I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian trembled. Now, these are, these are territories that aren't mentioned in the whole Babylonian thing. He, he's extending the map, saying, God, this, all nations are under this shadow. Oh, Lord, were you displeased with the rivers? Was your anger against the rivers? Was your wrath against the sea that you rode on your horses, your chariots of salvation? Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Selah. Now, Selah, which you'll see a few times here, is something you know from the Psalms, probably. Uh, the most common understanding is that this means stop and think about it. Uh, now, most understand this section to be a remembering of the Exodus. Um... Like I mentioned, Kushan and, and uh, Midian would have been neighbors who were rather astonished at what they saw and heard going on in, in Egypt. And the rivers God was displeased with, well, that actually happened. Remember the Nile, which was worshipped by the Egyptians? He turned into blood. The sea, the Red Sea, was split in half. Um, and so he's, he's remembering some of God's past victories, it seems, Halfway through verse 9, it says, Your bow was made quite ready. Oaths were sworn over your arrows. Uh, the, uh, there we go. Uh, you divided the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and trembled. The overflowing of the water passed by. The deep uttered its voice and lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their habitation. At the light of your arrows they went, at the shining of your glittering spears. You marched through the land in indignation. You trampled the nations in anger. This had happened when Israel entered Canaan. This is all part of Habakkuk's vision, of course, and the main subject is that God wins, right? God will conquer the world. That's the one big point. But there's little hints of history thrown in here, too. The sun and the moon standing still, well, that happened in the book of Joshua, right? So it seems like Habakkuk is singing praises to the Lord, and he's seeing future victory as sure as the past victories that have already been won. He's remembering past faithfulness and using that as, as, as his confidence for future victory. Habakkuk is strengthened in the present in part by looking at God's faithfulness in the past 
which gives him hope for the future. Bigger perspective. God defeated his enemies. God is still defeating his enemies. God will defeat all enemies. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. You went forth for the salvation of your people. For salvation with your anointed, you struck the head from the house of the wicked by laying bare from foundation to neck. Selah. You thrust through with his own arrows the head of his villages. They came out like a whirlwind to scatter me. Their rejoicing was like feasting on the poor in secret. You walked through the sea with your horses through the heat of great waters. <clears throat> now, a few things here. Uh, one is that in, in the midst of God's victory, Habakkuk is still very aware of just the terror of his enemies. But now he doesn't see them as his enemies anymore. They make him afraid. They're God's enemies. And if your enemies are God's enemies, you're in a great place. And a few more things here. When, when it says that you went forth for salvation with your anointed, I sure hope you noticed that. The word for anointed there is Messiah. Now this is where Habakkuk's song gets real serious. These are good theological depths. There's rich stuff here. It is not out of place to say that Habakkuk goes from specific battles, like the Exodus in Egypt and Babylon's future fall, and the ultimate bat to the ultimate battle between good and evil itself. Uh, last week, I think I mentioned that Babylon, while a real city, a historic city, is also a representation of the fallen satanic world system. And the Apostle John is talking about Babylon in Revelation. Peter talks about Babylon when he writes to the church. And they're talking about something else. So sometimes I, I like to say that prophecy is bifocal, right? There's a near fulfillment that you've got to look down at the bottoms for and then a far fulfillment for the long distance. Uh, Habakkuk adds a rearview mirror to all of this, too, just to confuse things a little bit more. But he's, he's seeing multiple layers of fulfillment in this prophecy. When we get to verse 13, it seems like we're looking through the distance lenses. You know, we're looking way out there. We're talking about things that won't find their whole fulfillment only in the defeat of Nebuchadnezzar, say, or, or Egypt. There's another battle. There's something more important here. This is a battle that the Lord will go into with his Messiah, with the commander of the Lord's army, who's not on your side, and he's not on their side, he's on his own side. And you look what the anointed will do, the Messiah. You struck the head from the house of the wicked. That imagery is, is of striking the head is lifted directly from Genesis 3.15. God's promise to Eve and his threat to the serpent. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. The seed of the woman is Christ. The Messiah will strike the head of the house of the wicked. And yes, he did. Verse 14 says that God used the arrows of his enemies against them. You thrust through with his own arrows. God's signature move is to use the enemy's weapon against him. The city of Babylon considered its walls to be its greatest strength, 300 feet high, 80 feet thick. That's huge. Impenetrable, invincible. You don't even need to guard them. You know how they're defeated? Someone went through the wall. <laughs> through a culvert, through the wall. Goliath's sword, great big weapon. How was it used? To cut off Goliath's head. How about Haman? Remember Haman and Esther who, who builds this great big gallows to hang Mordecai on? The gallows' first customer? Haman, right? <laughs> God loves to use the enemy's weapons against him, and of course, this is most clearly seen at the cross. 
The cross was Satan's tool to torture and kill the Son of God. But now the cross shows God's power. The cross is honorable because it is both the sign of God's suffering and the trophy of his victory. Whether he knew it or not, Habakkuk was speaking of things that would find their fulfillment in the cross of Christ, where God used the enemy's weapon to crush the head of the serpent. Paul writes about this in Colossians 2. In Colossians 2.13, he says, And you being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, having forgiven all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers, <coughs> he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. This is the fulfillment of the anointed one going to battle for the salvation of his people, using the weapons of the enemy to defeat him. And Habakkuk saw it. This is Habakkuk's vision. He saw the Lord triumphing over his enemies. And Habakkuk, does he rejoice? Well, eventually, yes. But first, he trembles before this vision. Verse 16, when I heard, my body trembled. My lips quivered at the voice. Rottenness entered my bones, and I trembled in myself that I might rest in the day of trouble. When he comes up to the people, he will invade them with his troops. Now verse 16 shows fear, and verse 17 shows joy. In verse 16 you have trembling and rottenness and also rest. And I know these two ideas aren't usually held in the same place, at least in our modern imaginations, but in scripture they are shown as conjoined truths more than you might expect. Isaiah chapter 11, verse 6, is a prophecy about Jesus Christ, and it says, And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in fear. That's Jesus. Psalm 2, verse 11 says, Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice, with trembling. It's like, man, that's whip that gives you whiplash, right? It's like, oh, serve the Lord, okay, with fear, oh. And rejoice, oh, with trembling. Ah! Like, <laughs> But fear and joy, they don't fit the same place in our heads. And neither do fear and friendship. But again, we read in Psalm 25 that the friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him. Habakkuk, upon seeing visions of the majesty of the glory of God, even in the form of severe judgment and punishment, is determined now to be afraid of nothing less than his great and glorious God. And he trembles in his presence. I teach a class on the fear of the Lord at YWAM every now and then. And it's a tricky topic, as you can imagine, because there's fear in the Bible that is forbidden. Fear not. And then there's fear that's encouraged and even commanded. <coughs> fear the Lord, all you is saying. Fear not, but then fear. And it's the same word, and there's no secret meaning, and so it di becomes difficult to distinguish between the bad fear that you shouldn't have and the good fear that you should have. But the, the one way to do this, the fear of the Lord, this holy, disarming Reverence drives you towards the Lord. And, and that's what we see with Habakkuk, who is God's friend, who is serving the Lord with fear, and now rejoicing even with trembling. But with every shake and tremble and, and humbling, he moves towards the Lord, not away from him. Now, before verse 1, I, I assume he was silent, because that's how chapter 2 ends. And then he sings. In verse 16, he trembles. 
And in verse 17, he rejoices. There was that key verse in chapter 2, the just shall live by faith. When we talk about faith, and whenever we talk about faith, but especially in our study in, in John, in John 3, in Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, we take the definition of faith to be the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. That's what A.W. Tozer says, and I love it. Habakkuk looked around, and he mourned, and he looked into the future, and he despaired, until he looked up, and then he trembled and rejoiced. Habakkuk is looking with eyes of faith. He will walk by faith. He will live by faith. He will tremble by faith. He will rejoice by faith. Let's look at these last verses of the book. This is a beautiful poem. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no food, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. He will make my feet like deer's feet, and he will make me walk on my high hills. I'm hesitant to, you know, dissect this poem too much because I'm, uh, not because I'm ever hesitant to expound on the passage, but because it's a, it's a poem. And if a poem is chopped up and parsed, it stops being a poem. <laughs> in my opinion, this is one of the most beautiful psalms in the Bible. It's not even a psalm. It's not even in the psalms. But it, you can understand it by reading this. It speaks for itself. I believe it speaks most loudly in its current context at the end of a vision of judgment, which itself comes at the end of a dialogue, a wrestling match between a troubled, a troubled prophet and an untroubled, but nevertheless troubling God. At the end of that dialogue portion in chapter 2, Habakkuk is silenced, and from that place of silence before God, he finds a place to unite his trembling with rejoicing. It's a deep paradox. He has peace, and he is worried. He sees emptiness, but he has all he needs. He sees destruction, but has a hope and a security that doesn't disappoint. It's like hinds feet on high places. This, he has... A clear vision of the utter destruction that's coming and has a hope that transcends the insecurities of this day, this age, this veil of tears. Chesterton said that a paradox is the only basket big enough to hold the truth. And Habakkuk, through his walk of faith, arrives at this truth that though all is lost, nothing can be. Though the world he knows is going to be destroyed, the world he believes in can't be touched. And in sorrow, even in trembling, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. Earlier I mentioned Paul's estimation of his sufferings, what he called his light and momentary afflictions. That's from 2 Corinthians 4, and he continues in the same chapter, in verse 16. 2 Corinthians 4, 16, he says, Therefore we do not lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. 
This is where we end with Habakkuk. With our eyes lifted past the things which are merely visible, only seen, only temporal, fixing our eyes on the things eternal, and being patient with our light afflictions that are faithfully working a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for meeting with us in the book of Habakkuk, in your word. We thank you for being the commander of the Lord's army, the anointed one who uses the enemy's weapons against him, who causes us to have hope, to have peace, to have rest. Lord, if you are for us, who can be against us? But we don't say, are you for us? Are you on our side? We say, please help us be on your side. Align our hearts, unite our hearts to fear your name because friendship with the Lord is for those who fear him. Let us rejoice with this trembling, being constantly aware that your throne is bigger than our lifetimes, that your reign reaches beyond our borders, that you've measured the earth and you've said, this is mine. Now give us this, this broad perspective of your victory. Bless us, your church, with faith to say, I will rejoice in God of my salvation no matter what. Wherever emptiness can be found, we look to you for our fullness. And wherever there's unrest, we, we see that you are our Prince of Peace. Jesus, we worship you, we love you, and we thank you for your blessing on us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. amen.